So we are in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, you can rise for the reading of God's Word. We are going through Luke chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Luke chapter 9. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 1, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you this morning that we can open up This book in front of us and see and read and listen to your very words, the words that were uttered from and are still being uttered this morning, that are from your very heart, that represent who you are, that are expression of who you are and who you want us to be, Lord, your word says, that those you foreknew you have predestined to be conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We know, Lord, that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the revealing of your word. Reveal it to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So Jesus has now been ministering for about two years at this point here in Luke. And at the end of this chapter, you will actually see in verse 51, although that's really, it's months away. The events that happened at the beginning of this chapter are are really months before the events later in the chapter. But in verse 51, he actually begins his journey to Jerusalem, his last one, the one where he'd be arrested and crucified. So... Jesus does know that his time is limited. There's probably about a year left to his ministry, but he knows there's just a year. He knows that, uh, he knows that and what we see here at the beginning of chapter 9 is he's beginning to release his ministry, or you could say release his life, (laughs) release the life of God to his disciples. It says in verse 1, he called them together and gave them power and authority and and sent them out. He's he's releasing the ministry to his disciples. Why did he do that? Supremely because the life of God always does that very thing. The Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry to reproduce the life of God in others. 
It's the very nature of the Holy Spirit to do that. Of course, Jesus was a man who was utterly filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. What had just happened with the Jordan? At the Jordan, he was baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he approached John the Baptist to be baptized. John the Baptist said, wait a second, what am what are you coming to me to be baptized? I, I should be um, baptized by you. And Jesus said, in order to fulfill all righteousness. And he was baptized. And when he was, John the Baptist saw the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus uh, like a dove. And it says he left that being baptized in verse 1 of, of Luke 4, being filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 14 of that same chapter, he, it says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and that's where he began to publicly declare the word of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 45, we have this very interesting verse. It says, the scripture says, this is the apostle Paul speaking, the scripture says the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. The spirit always reproduces itself. And um, or himself is really um, the correct way of, of saying it. It says the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. So our, the question for us is, are we just like Adam? Are we just merely a living person? You know, sort of a contest between the age of zero and 80, who can have as many, you know, plates of rice and beans, you know? Is that going to be what our life is about? Or are we just a living person? Or pasta? Or tortillas? Whatever part of the world you happen to be from? Is that what our life is going to be about? Or with Christ in us, the Bible says he's inside of us, are we going to be, as Christ, a life-giving spirit? And we're spiritual beings. And so Jesus, um, uh, here at the beginning of chapter 9, it, it, it's like he's releasing the ministry. But really what he's doing, he's releasing the life of God. So if the life of God is active in you, that life, the life of God, will be reproduced in the lives of others through you. So... Verse 1 again. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And I want you to, if, you have a, if you're taking notes, I want you to underline those three words in those first three words in those first two verses. Number one, the word called. Number two, the word gave. And number three, the word sent. It says he called, he gave, and he sent. He called them to himself. He gave them power and authority, and he sent them. And he does the same thing with you. And he does the same thing with me. He calls us, he draws us, calls us to himself. He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that anyone who invites Jesus in their, in their life is given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a deposit of what is to come. And number three, he sends us. He sends you. He calls you. He, he, he gives you the power 
in the person of the Holy Spirit, and he sends you. And that's what he's doing with his disciples here. Again, at this point, the disciples have spent two years with Jesus. They had seen him minister. Uh, he uh, actually... so. Up to this point, Jesus was the minister, and they were the observers. That, that's what had been going on for, for two years up to this time. They had heard Jesus teach hundreds of times. They had seen firsthand Jesus heal and minister to thousands of people. They had seen Jesus exercise authority over the demonic realm. We just saw that in the last chapter, in uh, chapter uh, 8 of Luke. And so he was the minister. They were the observers. That, by the way, is what discipleship is all about. Jesus was the master disciple. The disciple just goes about his business uh, of ministering. The person being disciple observes. But what often happens with a person being discipled, like these 12 disciples, like us, is that because of fear, because of lack of faith, because of a sense of inadequacy or whatever, uh, the person being discipled backs off. And any time any challenge comes forth or, or, or any ministry comes forth, they back off. We'll let the discipler do it. You can only imagine being around Jesus and this happening. Anything that comes up, well, guess we better let Jesus take care of it. No doubt this was beginning to happen with the disciples and Pharisee, uh, disciples and, and, and Jesus. So a Pharisee or Sadducee would, or would come up to Jesus and his disciples, and uh, they would say something like, so why do you guys uh, eat with tax collectors and sinners? And they say it to the whole group, the disciples and Jesus. And what happens? Of course, everyone's like this. Everyone, all at once looking at Jesus, and Jesus uh, would answer. We actually see this happening in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, they actually they ask a question not to Jesus but to his disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Who answers the question? Jesus did. He did. He said, those who, are, uh, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so they asked the disciples the question, but they sort of back off. Jesus had been, has, so he's been seeing this, uh, and uh, here in chapter 9, the time for that is over. The he- time for the head turning towards him is over. He's sending them out on their own. Same thing needs to happen with you. You can't be relying on Pastor Steve or any other pastor or leader, uh, your mature Christian friends or the church, uh, to reproduce the life of God through you. You can't rely on them to do that. That's religion, when people just sit in their pews and go to church, light candles or whatever, and rely on a, on a pastor or a priest to do it, uh, to, to reproduce the life of God. But that's not the body of Christ. We are, the church is the, the body of Christ. Every member in the church has been called to have the life of God reproduced through them into the life of others. So if the life of God is at work in you, and you can always resist it, Christian always has the 
has the choice to resist the life of God in their lives. But if you're not resisting the life of God, if the life of God is at active at work in, in you, it will be reproduced in the lives of others. So verse 1 and 2 says, Jesus called the 12 disciples. He gave them power and authority. He sent them. Notice how it says in verse 2, it says Jesus sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now we learned something here. This is what ministry looks like. People with God have a profound spiritual need. There is an emptiness inside of them that only God can fill. They need us to be preaching or declaring to them the kingdom of God. But they also have physical needs. And so we cannot, cannot neglect physical needs of other people and to say, well, yeah, I share with them the word of God and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry. Can you give me something to eat? No, be warm and be filled. Bye. You got the word, you know, and walk away. No, we need, we can't neglect the physical need. Here you see them merge together. People don't care about what you know until they know you care. And if you're an instrument of God's love and grace, you'll be feeding people spiritual food and, and physical food. They go hand in here and hand. And here Jesus has them doing both. Again, in verse 3, we read these verses. He said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, that means a walking stick, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. In other words, just one pair of clothing, the one on you. Verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so he sends out the disciples, but this time he stays back. So on this particular journey, he tells them to take nothing with them except the clothes they Except the clothes they're wearing, nothing else. Take nothing, he says in verse 3. No walking sticks, no bag to carry something in, no bread, no money. Nothing but the clothes that you're wearing. So now remember, this, this journey, no doubt, lasted months. This wasn't a few-day journey. Verse 6 says what? It says they preached the gospel everywhere, meaning all the villages and cities in Galilee and northern Israel, we know that at this time, just from scholars, that this was a heavily, heavily populated area, this northern Israel, Galilee. In fact, may have been the most heavily populated area in all of Israel because the trading routes went right through this area. And so this, you know, they were going to probably hundreds of, of villages and cities here, and um, notice also it says there that they're not necessarily just coming in, popping into a city for an hour or two. They would be spending days there. That's certainly what the verses implies. It says that they're spending the night at some places. And so this is a few month journeys, and he's, t- and he's sending them off, and he's telling them to take nothing. Verse 3, no bag, no bread, no money, and only the clothes that you are wearing. One tunic, not two. So, of course, that begs the question, right? Why? Why? 
Why? So they would learn how to trust him. The disciples by this time knew a lot about Jesus. Knew a lot about him. But there was one thing they didn't know, and that was how to trust him. They had listened to hundreds of Jesus' messages. They knew a lot about the kingdom of God, but they, very, they knew very little about how to trust God or about trusting God. So I'm going to put a quote up on the screen. This is not from a, the Bible. This is just a man's quote. It says this, The ultimate issue for the people of God in every age that means throughout all history, is not how much do you know, but who do you trust? The ultimate issue for the people of God in every age is not how much do you know, but who do you trust? Now, while it is true that you won't be able to trust God, unless you get to know him. It's also true that the whole purpose of getting to know him is so that you will trust him and rely upon him and worship him. Now, it's my observation as a pastor that very soon into a man or woman's walk with God, their greatest need is not to learn more about Jesus, is to trust him more. We never want to stop learning and getting to know him. Ever, 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 ever. Never, 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 never. But what I see happening over and over and over again, and this is just, I was the first in my, you know, in my I was the, the chiefest of the transgressors in this area, is people substituting, trusting in the Lord for learning more about him. Because it's a lot easier just to sort of go and listen to a sermon and, 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 and read a couple chapters in the Bible than to trust him, to trust him, to honestly trust him, putting your fears aside, your anxiety aside, sometimes common sense aside, and trusting him. And the problem with this is when you substitute trusting in the Lord for just learning more about him, your relationship with, with God just sh will shrivel up. It will shrink and shrivel up. It also makes your fruitfulness with God shrivel up. If you're not trusting in God, you will not, the life of God will not be reproduced through you into the life of others. Is any wonder why Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, and we put this up about every month. Without faith, trusting in God, it is impossible to please God. That old chapter, chapter 11, is about men and women trusting in the Lord. So Jesus says in verse 3, he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither uh, staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not 
have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Now let's pause for here for a moment. Just a warning to the wise. Whatever you do, don't go out and make some kind of goofy religious law out of this. Well, Jesus said I would, should go out for nothing, so I'm just going to hitchhike from here all the way to Guatemala, and I'm just going to wear the clothes that are on my back. Well, tell me what route you're on so I don't take it and don't pick you up with them dirty, smelly clothes, okay? You know, don't... And, and throughout history, people would take something like this out of context, and they'd make sort of a religious order or something out of it. But that's pretty crazy because uh, a, a few chapters from now, or may 11 or 12 chapters from now, uh, Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 35 and 36, he says, he said to them, this is right before he's arrested, actually, and, and, and crucified the day before. It, it, it says, he said to them at that point, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? He's referring to what he did in Luke chapter 9. That's what he's referring to right here. When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They answered, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And he even says in that verse, a sword. Not that they're supposed to be going out with a sword because the next chapter, Peter used a sword and cut a guy's ear off and he said, stop, don't do that. Just a sword just for, for, for sort of getting along. He says, if you don't have one, get one. And, and, and so they were sent out with, uh, with provisions there. But in Luke chapter 9, so he's not making a law. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 17, Moses came to give the law. Jesus to, came to give grace and truth. Jesus doesn't make up religious laws here, but he's teaching them. He'll teach you how to trust him, and sometimes indeed he will, strip away everything from you so that you will learn how to trust him. Some of you are sitting in here this morning. The Lord has stripped away everything from you. Why? So that you will learn how to trust him. Verse 5, let's not make a religious law out of this one either. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, take off the very shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So again, you know, don't, don't come up to me and say, well, my neighbor told me uh, they're not interested in Jesus, so I guess I have to, to move to New York. Please don't do that to yourself. Not New York. Please. No. No, let's not do that. Yeah, I, I think of the first two or three years uh, Stephanie and I were here in Boston. I, I had grown up here and moved away for a while. We came back and, and, and moved uh, about a mile away from here in Mission Hill. And uh, Stephanie went over to a neighbor and asked her if she wanted to come over and have tea. And the neighbor, who already knew that we were Christians just got immediately 
antagonistic. Absolutely not. And by the way, I want you to know, I'm not like you. And neither is that neighbor, neither is that neighbor, and neither is that neighbor. And Stephanie, who's originally from the South, you know, the Southern Belle, you know, welcome to Boston, Stephanie. (laughs) Stephanie didn't come back and say, oh, Steve, we got to get out of here. You know, Jesus said, shake the dust, leave. No, no, he wasn't making up a law. And most of the time, he tells us to stand our ground. One of the neighbors uh, that woman pointed out gave her life to Jesus. And I was sitting in her living room with my kids doing it. He's not making up a, a, a law here, although what he is doing is he is reinforcing to his disciples the same general rule that he ministered by, and that was what? Don't force yourself on people. Love doesn't do that. Don't tamper with a man's free will. We just saw that in chapter 8. Remember the Gadarenes? Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who had been roaming the countryside for years, naked, screaming night and day, possessed by many demons. He casts them out. With the, the people of the city and the surrounding region come out to see what had happened. They heard what had happened. And there they see the man clothed in his right man, mind sitting at the feet of Jesus. It freaked him out so much, they asked Jesus to leave. They just wanted a normal life. What did he do? He got in the boat, and he left. He got in the boat, and he left. And he's God. If anyone has a right to say, sorry, I'm not leaving. You know, I'm staying here. I'm forcing myself. No, it was him, but he, he's telling us to behave likewise here in chapter 9. Uh, and so the message is this. You know, by faith, brothers and sisters, go out. Be persistent with sharing your faith with others. Be bold. Be courageous. But if they say no, respect it. But wait a second. They're, they're, they'll be going to hell. They'll go to hell. What a it's yes, it's, but it's, it's their choice. When God gave us a free will, oh my, did he give a dangerous thing. So there's also the sense here in verse 5 that the time is short, though. Don't don't get hung up in one village if they're rejecting you. The next village is is waiting for you. Uh, It's the same with us. If there's someone who just wants to argue, move on. They're holding you up from the next person who's open to God. And this is what we, on Saturday nights, we have a group that goes out witnessing every Saturday night. This is what we talk about all the time. Let's, Let's not get our pride involved in any conversation about God. Just move on. When someone's arguing. Verse 7, let's move on. (laughs) Let's us move on now. Verse 7, now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. So the word about Jesus was spreading so rapidly, particularly with these men going out in the countryside and and through cities, that um, it gets right, the news of Jesus gets right to up to the court of the king, King Herod. King Herod hears the report that Jesus is actually John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And, you know, if you're King Herod, 
that's not very good news because he cut off John the Baptist's head. I mean, the last thing you want is for the person, you cut their head off for that person to be risen from the dead, man, haunting you. And he's a superstitious man. That's what is out in the world that doesn't have the truth. They're superstitious, and, you know, he's thinking this. And what's interesting, and I want to, we need to move quickly to the next verses, but, you know, this is, there's a lot to be said here just about what guilt will do to you. Guilt will tur- turn you into a madman, a mad woman. This man had killed John the Baptist after hearing John the Baptist repeatedly share with him about God. The Bible says that, John the, uh, that King Herod actually liked to bring John the Baptist to him, but because of a foolish oath he, that he made to, to uh, his friends, he, he wound, or actually to his daughter, was it his daughter or his wife's? daughter, his wife's daughter, one of his wife's daughters. He, he wound up beheading uh, John the Baptist, and now he's living with guilt. This is what guilt will do. This is what sin will do. This is what a life of disobedience to, to God will do. It'll make you paranoid, trusting no one, no joy, no peace, no contentment. And here we have a firsthand view into the mind of a man who's plagued by guilt. He's, uh, guilt dominates his life because of sin. Here's the irony. There was a way for Herod to do away with all that guilt. Now, it does say he desired to see Jesus, but we know from other verses in Scripture that it was just because he wanted to see a miracle. He wanted to see a circus. The irony is, is this life of of paranoia, this messed up mind he had, there was a way. Jesus says, in the world you will have trouble, but be not, uh, but don't worry, don't be... don't be troubled. In, in me, there is peace. I have over, why? Because I've overcome the world. I will give you peace. I leave you my peace. My peace I give you, not as the world gives. I give unto you. Jesus would have given Herod peace if Herod repented. And like anyone else who's ever been saved by Jesus Christ said, I've, I've lived a life totally after my own flesh, after myself. I give my heart, my life to you. I believe you're the son of God. It appears that Herod died, though, in his sin, and he never did that. What a sad, tragic uh, picture into the life of a, uh, of a person who is just filled with guilt and rebellion and hatred towards the word of God. Verse 10 says this, and the apostles... Remember, Jesus had sent them out. When they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Now, the book of Mark adds this. This is an interesting verse from the book of Mark. Do we have that? The book of Mark? It says there in the book of Mark, chapter 6, verse 31, It says that at the same time, it says, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. So they had been out for months preaching the kingdom of God, casting out demons, healing the sick, ministering to people, loving on them. 
And Jesus, when they got back, he says, come away by yourself to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were so many people coming and going, they did not even have time to eat. So there we see the heart of God. He, he is okay with you taking a rest. Not only is he okay with it, he wants it. He wants you taking a rest. Of course, one of the reasons why, he knows that the rest is only going to last so long. And that's what happens in verse 11. When the multitudes knew it, that is where they were, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. It's a remarkable verse there. That there was just the, mul- the multitude, the crowds were getting so overwhelming. They went and got a rest. But the rest was short. They found out where they were. What does Jesus do? It says he received them. How did he receive them? They found me again. No, actually, in the book of Mark and Matthew, we learn what his heart was. In the parallel account in Matthew, when he saw the multitudes coming at this very place we're in in Luke chapter 9, it says he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Now, if you do a Greek word study, that word compassion in the Greek, it's, it's a physical, he was physically moved. His heart was so broken for them. Ever been so, had your heart so broken you can't eat and you're, you're sick? Same word here. That he was physically altered, physically moved for them because they were weary and scattered. Another translation is that they were, they were fainting and dying and dropping like sheep having no shepherd. He didn't see a nuisance. He, he didn't see a nuisance. He didn't see pestering people. He saw sheep that were broken. They were scattered. They were weary And it says that he received them. Now, in verse 12, we get a picture into what the disciples were thinking. And this is just a conviction to my heart. When the day began to wear away, the 12 came and said to him, send the multitudes away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. Verse 13, but Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. Verse 14, for there were about 5,000 men. And I believe in the book of Matthew, it says not including women and children. It's probably 10,000 people. Verse 14 continues, Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. Then he, he took the loaves and the two fish And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them, and he gave them to the disciples to set before the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments 
were taken up by them. And so we see his heart here for the multitude. Now you may ask, you have all these people, thousands around Jesus with nothing to give them? Why is it in verse 13? Why is it that Jesus asks them or tells them, you give them something to eat? Why does he do that? You give them something to eat. Because he wanted to teach them how to trust him. They knew a lot about him. But they didn't know how to trust him. The life of trusting in him. They did not know that life. You know, we learn from this when we're presented with something in life. A ministry that looks impossible because there's no resources to do it. A marriage, a broken marriage, a broken relationship that looks impossible to restore. A financial situation, it looks, it looks, impo- you know, it looks impossible to ever resolve. We are taught here by Jesus that we are not to simply just say, well, there's no way that God wants me to pursue this thing because it's impossible. So I'm not going to pursue it. I'm going to leave this ministry to someone else. I'm going to leave this spouse to someone else. I'm going to leave this situation, this financial situation, and let it be someone else's problem. I'm going to whatever. He wants us to what? Pray, which is what he did. In the book of Matthew, when they tell him that there was only five loaves and two fish, the book of Matthew says, bring them to me. Bring them to me. And that's the key. You bring the impossible to Jesus. And listen, he will be bringing you the impossible on a regular basis. Why? He wants you to trust him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, in Hebrews 11, verse 6, I'm going to put this up again. I actually didn't put the whole verse up before. Actually, it's at the very end of the message there. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, you can, now let's leave that up there for a little while. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God will regularly bring you the, imp- the impossible because he, without faith it's impossible to please him. Without faith, your, faith will sh- your relationship with him will shrivel up. Without faith, the life of God that is in you will not be reproduced in the life of others. 
And you know what I love about what happens here? It says in verse 17, so they ate all and were filled, and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. And what does the verse say? He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So as you trust in the Lord, as you diligently seek him, you can, I get this impossible situation. I'm just going to I'm just going to leave it. You know, send out the people into the surrounding villages. They need to go get something to eat. No, that's not what Jesus wants you to do. He wants you to diligently seek him. To diligently seek him believing that he is a rewarder of those who, um, who diligently seek him. And, and, and here you have 12 baskets full. People say, you know, I, my, 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 I never see the hand of God in my life. I can, you know, months have gone by, years. But have you run away from every, each and every impossible situation <laughs> that God has put before you. So oftentimes when I'm in a conversation like that with people, it all comes down to disobedience. The Lord will show his hand in your life. He will. But you need to trust him. You need to trust him with that situation he puts in front of you. If he says no bag, no money, no, no tunic, other than the one on you, and you're running off and, 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 and getting a bag, getting a money, getting the food, you're not seeing his hand. And so, but I love the way that it ends because it's a confirmation of, of this verse once again. Without faith, it's impossible, impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Okay, 12 baskets full. We will end there with that wonderful, wonderful picture of the Lord's abundance that he puts in front of those who diligently seek him. Okay, let's rise and, and pray, and the worship team can, can come up for a closing worship song. We thank you, Lord, for this, this picture, Lord. We want the 12 baskets full in our own life, Lord. But we need your grace. We need you to speak to us. We need to hear, Lord, when you're saying, go out, no money, no bag, no food. And Lord, above all, we need what you gave the disciples, which is the Holy Spirit. Your word says we have the Holy Spirit. But it also says, Lord, that we can ask And you will fill us with the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, I think of your words where you tell your disciples, if a son asks a father for bread, would he give him a rock? If he asks him for an egg, would he give him a snake? If you, being evil, give your children good things, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good things and give you the holy give the holy spirit to those who ask for him lord we ask for the holy spirit we agree and ask you for that power lord that grace that we need lord 
so that our life, the life, rather the life, your life in us will be reproduced in the lives, Lord, of our families, our coworkers, our neighbors, the people in the tea, the people at the cash register in the store, Lord, the people uh, on the, just on the sidewalks of Boston, the people we meet going up the elevator, Lord, we need the Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can ask and receive him. Lord, I just pray for anybody in this room, Lord. They're a Herod, Lord. The guilt in their life, the sin, the disobedience. has just resulted in so much fear, Lord, and turmoil in their mind, Lord, that they would today, by faith, do what your word says. Can be done to just replace it with complete peace, and that is giving their life to Jesus Christ, your son. And Lord, even as we go out, it's our prayer for this week, for this day, for this hour. Yes, Lord, that we would reproduce the life of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.